The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We live in truly trying times. For those who have watched the news, we see the prevalence of war. We see violence and bloodshed, horrible states of suffering that our humanity is afflicted with. Whenever we encounter such distressing moments in our collective humanity, we have to really go to the root of the most ancient traditions. There is no other option in terms of understanding the state of our world, our place in it, how to navigate it, except to go back to the legacy of the initiates, to examine what the great spiritual teachers taught. In their traditions and scriptures, we find an abundance of wisdom about how to properly orient ourselves ethically, psychologically, spiritually. The purpose of this lecture is precisely to look at the roots of the Jewish mystical tradition. And if you've been following this series of lectures, we've dived very deeply into a lot of the practical orientations of this tradition itself, primarily meditation, knowing how to investigate superior truths in a state of equanimity, and insight. What we'll do today primarily is when examining the roots of Judaism, we're going to apply this wisdom to the Gnostic tradition. We'll talk about how Jewish mysticism is a universal doctrine. We're going to define, elaborate, analyze, and explain the nature of esoteric thought in relation to the exoteric, meaning the hidden roots of religion in relation to public discourse, public religion, the relationship, how they interact, and more importantly, how to understand both in a practical sense. We'll relate some spiritual principles within Jewish narrative, law, prayer, mysticism, and practice 
especially in relation to our Gnostic tradition. More importantly for us, we're exploring how Kabbalah is practical, how we as a individual, as a consciousness, can apply the ancient Hebrew wisdom in a modern sense, in a practical sense. We'll look at how in the writings of Samal and Vior, how they relate to the Jewish tradition itself. We're going to synthesize some essential points or foci within the Kabbalistic and Gnostic traditions relating how the former in itself conserves, conveys, and complements the latter. How we find within Kabbalah a deep personal experience of divinity which is the definition of the Greek gnosis or the Hebrew da'at. And lastly, we're going to provide some basis in which the individual achieves initiation into these higher mysteries, which have been codified within the mythologies of diverse religions, but also within the Hebraic Kabbalah. And that initiation is a path of which we as a soul join the spiritual communities of the higher worlds. So, in the most practical sense, when we study Kabbalah, we study the exoteric and the esoteric. We know that traditionally Kabbalah is the esoteric tradition, the root of Judaism, or what is called the heart of the Jewish tradition itself. Now, some scholars have obviously explained how Kabbalah developed out of Judaism within the 12th and 13th century, especially in medieval Europe, southern France. In Spain. The truth is that Kabbalah, the mystical heart of this beautiful faith, came first. And that was later codified through writings such as the Zohar, the Talmud, and many other writings later on. It's important to understand that in every religion, no matter what culture or ethnicity or faith, that life subsists in public and private spheres. There is a public knowledge, and then there is a private or esoteric knowledge. It's beautiful to look at Judaism to see this relationship, because in essence, the heart of Judaism is a living spiritual principle. This private wisdom is what informs a practitioner of how to live life in the physical world, how to be an ethical being, how to be spiritually conscious, an awakened individual, wise, patient, serene, insightful. We have fortunately been blessed in our humanity by many religions and faiths. We know that Many prophets or messengers of divinity have come to teach through their scriptures and writings, their sermons, their lectures, their wisdom about how to resolve the problem of suffering. And while the knowledge that they convey comes from a very deep root, a personal relationship with divinity, the truth is that their wisdom, while public knowledge and now available to everyone, is often something inaccessible 
It is inaccessible for modern conditioned mind, the intellect. The intellect can store information, can codify a tradition, can label things. But as we were explaining in the previous lectures, this is a, not enough. What's important is that we put the mind aside and learn to access the consciousness, the soul that knows how to awaken, to perceive, to understand superior mysteries. It's important to also emphasize that esotericism is a relative term. You know, when we talk about traditions in general, we often hear the term esoteric books or scriptures, knowledge that was once reserved for an elite. Now, the truth is that this term is a is a misnomer because really the writings that we have available now from antiquity is no longer esoteric. It's public knowledge. We live in a very different time. We live in a time in which we can access scriptures that many people in the past had to bleed and sweat for, had to work for, had to fight for. Often the writings of the Zohar, the Talmud, many other esoteric books or scriptures and writings were reserved for an elite, a select group of individuals who were selected based on their ethical caliber and had proven their candidacy through many years of trials and temptations and struggles and ordeals. They earned that wisdom through great labor and endurance. And so they were given access to scriptures and knowledge of higher teachings, practices, and wisdom that could really advance their spirituality. But they had to prove their, their worth. Now, in our modern era, these scriptures are available to everybody. And as I was saying, the problem is no longer the availability of scripture. It's now the problem of interpretation and understanding. Real esotericism, we can say the spirit of a given thing, cannot be found in a lecture. It can't be found in a book. It's not even in the greatest scriptures, the legacy of the initiates that we as a humanity have inherited. Real esotericism is the direct living experience of the consciousness in relationship with divinity. It is our personal witnessing of divine reality and truth. It is conscious living. It is the ability to enter meditation, to calmly si silence the mind without force, artifice, or exertion. It means to access the truth for ourselves at will. You put the mind aside, you put the heart aside, you put the body aside. And you even enter with alert cognition into the dreaming state to perceive real visions, what is actually there, and not a mere projection of our own desires. It is a form of real conscious living. It is a state in which we can really investigate the root of any scripture or what anyone has ever taught. You receive wisdom and knowledge that is far beyond any written page. This is real esotericism. This is real knowledge. This is not to discount the beauty and depth and versatility of many writings, especially the Hebrew Kabbalah. 
what we're emphasizing is that there are levels and degrees of knowledge. And that while books are now public discourse, they're available to everybody. Real conscious knowledge is inaccessible to the mind. It is not arbitrary. It does not depend on opinion. What people believe or disbelieve, it is factual experience. This is what we cultivate in our Gnostic studies. This is what we want to really develop in ourselves. Now, in relation to the public and the private, Kabbalah has been the esoteric tradition, really the mystical compass that orients or has oriented many Jewish mystics and followers of the Jewish faith. This esoteric language, Kabbalah, encoded within Hebrew characters and writings, while codified within the culture of Judaism, Jewish culture throughout antiquity, the reality is that that wisdom comes from real higher states of being. And so we study the exoteric, you know, the public knowledge that's available to everyone, but with a very refined purpose to understand what these traditions are actually teaching from experience, not belief. And so humanity collectively has always developed in these two circles. And this is the great divide you find in early Christianity with the first Christians, the Gnostics, with the developing orthodoxy at the time. This is what happened within Islam. This is also a dynamic that has happened within Jewish mystical thought, Jewish tradition, is that there is a public form of knowledge and there is an esoteric. Really, the great masters of the spiritual hierarchies have always dwelled within the inner heart of religion. They always taught that religion is truly a personal revelatory experience one cultivates in themselves. It's not merely found by public adherence or attendance to a group. The truth is that it is what the soul witnesses for him or herself. Here is what Salman Vior wrote in The Perfect Matrimony about this. Humanity develops in two circles, the exoteric and the esoteric. The exoteric is public. The esoteric is secret. The multitudes live in the exoteric circle. However, the adepts of the Great White Brotherhood live in the esoteric circle. To help those who are within the public circle is an obligation for all the initiated brothers and sisters. It is necessary to bring as many people as possible into the secret circle of the White Brotherhood. Now, this is a term for the initiates of the divine law. The term white is in reference to the clarity and purity of the consciousness. Perception, unfiltered, lucid, clear, divine. And as a brotherhood, it simply means the order of those beings like Jesus or Buddha, Krishna, Moses, the prophets, who have exemplified in their life a higher law. And therefore, they are a congregation or group that can teach you in the internal worlds, especially as we've discussed earlier in relation to dream yoga and astral travel. 
So this is the knowledge that we seek through Kabbalah, direct experience, direct witnessing of the truth. And that this knowledge is meant to help those who are in the public level of religion to go deeper into the meaning of their faith. Now, this is really an interesting and important dynamic to examine because the external knowledge is necessary for the internal. Really, as we explained about the Zohar in the previous lecture, the wisdom of the angels or the great masters of humanity are always taught in a symbolic form and that these symbols and narratives and stories and traditions and mythologies really uh, are forms that convey deeper allegorical, parabolic, spiritual principles. You cannot receive the message without the symbol. And in fact, these symbols are fundamental to the functioning of any religion or movement. The form is needed to carry the message in the same way that a cup carries the wine or the elixir of divine life. In the sense of Judaism, really, the tradition itself is very much informed by the spiritual pr principles that inhabit it. Kabbalah can help us really understand what Judaism is teaching through all these stories, narratives, and myths. And so we examine what Kabbalah teaches to understand the tradition itself. And in the same way, Kabbalah can help us inform our understanding of every religion. And that the forms convey the inner principles. And the inner principles are expressed in the outer. Now, in the form, in the in relationship to this, there are problems, obviously. When we study the public form of religious knowledge and the esoteric or inner form of religious knowledge, there might appear to be contradictions. There may be things that are taught in the inner circle that don't fit well or conform to many of the prejudices or beliefs, the biases of the external public religion. Often what happens is really are two things. In terms of contradictions in external religious forms, really there are two parts. The external religion, in one sense, may be very distant from its real inherent meaning because traditions are born, they live, and they die. Traditions calcify, they crumble, they become corrupt with time, with exposure to human desire. The desire to change what the traditions are actually teaching because the inner heart of religion goes against personal whims. But sadly, as you see with pretty much any religion or even in the Gnostic movement, that when people encounter things they don't like about a tradition or what a certain teacher taught, they may try to adapt or adulterate what is there. And this is very sad. It's understandable, but it's, it's unfortunate. 
contradictions usually arise within public knowledge because really religions can lose the sense of their meaning with time. They become distant from what was actually taught and conveyed. Now, in relationship to this, the public and the private, it really takes a lot of willpower to look at the big picture, to examine what these traditions are teaching in their current form, to examine them, to look at them, and to not necessarily judge, to believe in, or disbelieve, but to look, to examine what are the facts, what is being taught, Will this knowledge be beneficial and practical? Does it teach how to develop a real personal integral relationship with divinity? Honestly, if we look at ourselves and we take the time to examine our current state of suffering, we may come to the conclusion that no matter how many religions we follow, leaving one and following another the next, the next day, no matter how much we study with our intellect, no, many, no matter how many scriptures we read, these don't in themselves necessarily change the fundamental problem of pain. This is why it really takes a lot of willpower to investigate and to search, to find the heart of religion, no matter what culture, time, and place, to find what is the real heart of this faith and how does one practically live? How does one practically experience divinity? Because this is the real heart of any faith. Unfortunately, in the public level of knowledge, people think that one just merely needs to believe. Meanwhile, every religion was founded by people who experienced the truth. Therefore, why should we not do the same? And therefore, we find by examining this that the intellect, while useful in its place, is not definitive. It takes a lot of strength to put aside the mind and to go within, to really find within our own experience what the path is. And this strength is not found by merely rejecting you know, a, a religion or a tradition, a way of thought, a philosophy, or following another one. It's not a rebellion against any particular group of people or anyone external to us. It is about rebelling against our own limitations and mind. The truth is that our mind is the obstacle. If we don't know divinity from experience, it's because we have not fulfilled the necessary causes and conditions that grant access to that knowledge. And the primary obstacle, as we've been explaining, is our own intellect. The mind that thinks it knows, presupposes, can eloquently articulate many obscure verses from diverse scriptures, but it doesn't mean we've actually practically experienced what is there. Again, this does not discount intellectual knowledge. It's useful in its place. What we're emphasizing is that the esoteric part of religion is found through experience. 
It is internal and personal. And once we have that, to some degree, we can really pick up any scripture and, and understand what is it teaching because we've lived it. It becomes very magical and profound. However, this is not to discount religious forms in the public sense. As someone we wrote in The Perfect Matrimony, the following. In the public circle, there are thousands of schools, books, sects, contradictions, theories, etc. A labyrinth which only the strongest leave. Really, all those schools are useful. We find grains of truth in all of them. All religions are holy and divine. All of them are necessary. Nevertheless, the secret path is only found by the strongest. It requires renunciation. Renouncing that we think we know and being humble and asking for insight from divinity within our own hearts. Now, in the process of explaining this dynamic, we'll go very deep into some of the aspects and legacy of medieval Judaism. So what I'm going to explain today in terms of the exoteric tradition, which is now public knowledge, are aspects of Jewish religious uh, wisdom in terms of um, stories and Jewish law, prayer, mysticism, and scripture that can help us understand how to practically experience divinity and to understand the relationship of ancient wisdom with personal experience. Because really what concerns us with Gnostic understandings or wisdom is how to really live these things. We'll explain the esoteric meaning, the conscious meaning, the conscious living relating to these forms of medieval Judaism. Because not only do they inform the tradition of Kabbalah, which you find really codified within 12th and 13th century uh, Jewish mystical traditions, such as within the Zohar. You also find that these five forms of tradition can teach us many things about what Salman Vior wrote in his writings and in relation to the Gnostic movement. Here's what Arthur Green, a uh, Kabbalah scholar, wrote in A Guide to the Zohar. To understand the ways in which Kabbalah, and particularly the Zohar, finds its home within the earlier tradition, we need to distinguish five elements that are present in the legacy of medieval Jews received from the Judaism of the Talmudic age. Agadah, narrative tradition. Halakah, Jewish law. Piyot, liturgical prayer. Merkavah, mysticism. And lastly, the Sefer Yetzirah. We'll explain all five of these components. So Agadah, the narrative tradition, is a very beautiful form of knowledge. Really, you find this within uh, Jewish writings like the Midrash, which are a form of scriptural interpretation that help us understand the lives of the great rabbis, the great teachers of mystical Judaism. What's beautiful about the form of story that this Jewish aspect of tradition teaches is that you get to see the nuance and the novelty of interpretation of ancient scripture. You find that these rabbis go to these old texts, look at the explicit meaning of what is written, and then they have these very delicate, refined, beautiful, and original interpretations. So they have interpretations that may seem to be very contradictory or 
kind of blown the face of conventional wisdom, but in fact have a higher truth to them that is very overwhelming and overpowering. It's very beautiful to see this mystical type of logic. It's not merely intellectual association. Now there's a component to that with the Kabbalah because these rabbis will literally quote scripture word for word, being well-versed in the ancient Hebrew. But they also have very fresh eyes when they look at the five books of Moses or the, really the Tanakh in general, the canon of Jewish scripture. What's very beautiful is that their wisdom is very experiential. And this is why such knowledge really flies in the face of a lot of materialistic thought because the very definition of a life of an initiate is that their way of being is very novel. It's spontaneous. You can't predict what they're going to say. And this is very accurate to really meeting initiates in the physical world. Individuals who have some level of spiritual development, who are giving a lot of knowledge. And every time you think you know what they're going to say, they are one step ahead or maybe even 20 steps ahead and can give us a lot of insight and understanding about how to live. And it's very humbling and very beautiful to see. So these rabbis would literally, you know, give these unconventional readings of, you know, seemingly banal, literal events, events that, you know, you take at face value, but they really unpack and say, this is the real depth of what's going on here in this story. More importantly, this is knowledge that we can verify through meditation. And that's really where the beauty of Agadah comes into play. You verify it from your own experience. The Zohar is very much based in this form of knowledge because it's a, it's really a conversation between different rabbis about ancient scripture, about the Torah, its meaning. And on the surface, there Contributions may seem very unusual, very strange. But if you go really deep into what they're saying and you're meditating, you're asking for clarification, understanding of that wisdom. Really, a lot of insight can come. Here's what Arthur Green wrote about the nature of Agadah. The first of the five elements is Agadah, the narrative tradition contained in the Talmud and the various works of Midrash. Midrash is a hermeneutical term relating to a style of scriptural interpretation rendered both as inquiry and homiletics, which is preaching or sermons, indicating a way of delving into scripture that tends towards fanciful and extended rereadings. So the fanciful part, obviously, I talked about some of the interpretations might seem really out of the ordinary. A lot of people may think of them as something superstitious or super normal, not real, but as evidenced by the attractiveness of these forms of writing, we find that there's some real core or seed, a beautiful message that is really hidden there, which invites us to read and reread again to really immerse ourselves in what's being said. Now, such knowledge may seem obscure, you know, a lot of times these writings are very surprising and often very unexpected because these legends regarding the initiates, you know, in one sense are not meant to be taken on a literal level. 
there's something symbolic or meditative about the lifestyle of these individuals. You find something paralleled within the Zen tradition with the koans, koans, especially. You find this even within the Sufi tradition, the lives of any saint who would do miraculous things or say miraculous things that really astound people because their power and depth, while confounding the intellect, have a great power to them. And that's why they've moved people over the centuries to want to document, write, conserve, and transmit this knowledge to other people. And as I said, the lives of the initiates are very new. They're novel. They're unique. And more importantly, because their behavior is so authentic and genuine, you find that in their example, the, the process of revelation. And revelation is a form of meditation. When we're meditating and the mind isn't thinking anymore, when we're silent and still, but lucid and clear, suddenly the, the spark, the insight hits us. And therefore, we have an understanding about whether it's a scripture or maybe a defect we're working on in our own mind that enlightens us. We get wisdom. This wisdom, this inspiration, this aha moment really can reinvigorate our reading of scripture because it's from that basis in which, with that experience, we look at any scripture. We look at the Jewish text. We look at the Quran. We look at the Buddhist sutras. And then we understand what's being said. We no longer look at it in the conventional view, the literal level, the dead letter, as we said earlier in the former lectures, the dead letter that literally kills in their fundamentalism and rigid absurdity. Instead, you look at the spirit of the letter. It vivifies. It provides us real spiritual life because we've witnessed it. Now, the Agadah in particular is really a form of legends, as I was saying. It often talks about biblical history and that the rabbis are talking about what happened in the Bible, especially within the biblical corpus, the metaphorical landscape in which these you know, biblical characters are inhabiting. But more importantly, this reflects the, the rabbinic world, meaning the lives of certain rabbis in the past who are trying to relate these scriptures to their current life because they want to understand how to overcome suffering. Here's what Arthur Green wrote in the Guide to the Zohar. Much of Agadah is legendary in content, expanding biblical history and recreating the biblical landscape in the setting of the rabbinic world. But Agadah also includes tales of the rabbis themselves and teachings of wisdom in many forms, maxims, parables, folk traditions, and so forth. So and often, such in the Zohar, you find not only commentary on the Bible, or better said, the Old Testament, you also find many maxims and parables, sayings that they gave, the origination of certain traditions, which are very pithy and very deep because of their authenticity, originality, their brevity and their depth. They have remained within the legacy of Jewish mystical writings and have been passed on so that hopefully a later generation can learn from their writings and apply them to daily life. Next, we have Halakha, Jewish law. Probably one of the prominent features of Judaism is an emphasis on law, such as you find in Deuteronomy, the old, um, 
you know, the book of Numbers, many codifications and observances that were demanded of the Jewish people to follow in order to be a divine and religious person. What's interesting about what's interesting about the halakha is that while these are laws found within scripture, they have very profound depths and nuance and meaning in relation to Kabbalah. Obviously, if you read the Old Testament, you see many laws in place to observe for the Jewish people, such as kosher, um, abstaining from pork, other observances, which on a literal level seem very basic, right? Like how do we eat? How do we dress? How do we live? You find this in many religions, basic commandments. What's important to understand is that for Kabbalists, scriptural law has a symbolic dimension. The laws themselves, while we're practiced on one exoteric level and a basic observance in daily life, such as not eating unlawful food, for example, have something very profound and deep to teach us on a psychological, moral, metaphorical, and spiritual level. There's even one observance, I believe, uh, you know, to avoid shellfish, for example. And obviously for observant Jews, Jews avoid consuming shellfish. What is a shell? According to Kabbalah, it is klifa or plural shells, klipot. Symbolically, a shellfish in a deeper inner religious spiritual sense can reference basically an ego, a defect, because any defect or desire, an ego, a sense of self is like a shell that traps the consciousness. And therefore, it's not lawful to consume this type of element. On a symbolic level, we should not eat shellfish. Really. Don't feed your pride. Do not feed lust. Do not consume impressions or states of being which pollute the consciousness, which keep us encaged, trapped within suffering. Avoid it. Abstain from it. Maybe the kinds of things we watch on television, we see on the news or we see on Twitter or on X. Really, these things are can be like shellfish. We're consuming empty knowledge, information that pleases the senses, but which does not feed the soul, which expends and wastes a lot of time and energy. It's like consuming a dead thing a carcass, a shell. Beautiful symbol. But obviously, you know, script, these laws, which you find in the Halakha, are basically have levels of meaning. On one sense, these are laws that were practiced in the public level of that religion. But in a deeper sense, the Kabbalists would spend a lot of time, such as in the Zohar, looking at specific verses where you find these laws and really going deep into what they mean metaphorically, spiritually, abstractly, consciously, philosophically. Now, scholars have emphasized that 
it is the halakha, which has often deterred a lot of people from Judaism. Because many people have been um, maybe uncomfortable with how many observances one should follow within public exoteric Judaism. But the Kabbalists have spent a lot of time emphasizing that you cannot throw this away from the tradition. It's essential. Primarily because there's deeper levels to it that are not ascertained in the superficial sense or in the public level of reading. The second element is the tradition of Halakha, the legal and normative body of Talmudic teaching, the chief subject of study for Jews throughout the medieval era, and thus the main curriculum on which most Kabbalists themselves were educated. Other writers like Gershom Sholem emphasize in the ma in major trends in Jewish mysticism that there was a divide within Judaism, primarily many centuries ago, between philosophers and mystics. That there were philosophers in the Jewish faith who wanted to do away with halakha. They thought that it was not important, that it was something meaningless, obscure, difficult, contradictory, challenging, too ideal to actually practically live in oneself. Whereas the Kabbalists emphasized that Halakha contains the mystical. There are mystical truths within this form of writing. This is because, as we explained earlier, the dead letter kills the soul in its fundamentalism, whereas the spirit vivifies the letter that kills. What is the spirit of the letter? It is the insight, the inner meaning, the mystical apprehension, the revelatory knowledge of one's own divine experience from meditation, from direct witnessing of the truth. And that informs one's reading of what these laws mean. In this way, we see that really the spirit of initiation, the spirit of divine wisdom, really is embodied and that these laws really teach us something beautiful that there are levels of application and that if people want to follow the public esoteric level i'm sorry the public exoteric level of the tradition that's fine but there are levels and layers as we explained in the last lecture levels of meaning levels of knowledge in terms of advanced intermediate and public or introductory Here's what Gershom Sholem said about how the Kabbalists view these Jewish laws. To the philosopher, the halakha either had no significance at all, or one that was calculated to diminish rather than to enhance its prestige in his eyes. Entirely different was the attitude of the Kabbalists. For them, the halakha never became a province of thought in which they felt themselves strangers. Right from the beginning, and with growing determination, they sought to master the world of the halakha as a whole, and in every detail. This is very evident if you study the Zohar. They really mastered the language. So they're basically going back and forth about the legality of Mosaic commandments or commandments conveyed through Moshe, Moses. And they go into great, great depth. It's important not to ignore it, but to understand its place because there's deep wisdom hidden within, within their verses. In the same way, we find that piyot, liturgical poetry, prayers within the Jewish faith, 
also convey a lot of wisdom. In our tradition, we study a lot of prayers and conjurations. We have invocations that we use to receive divine help. We invoke Christ, divinity, the sacred, the eternal, the Christic energy, the divine forces, so that we can get help, so that we can work upon our own mind and transform our suffering into happiness and wisdom. In the process of this, Effort, we use many recitations. There are sacred sounds that we pronounce, like mantras, which can aid me meditation, insight, serenity, understanding. Now, in the Gnostic tradition alone, we have literally hundreds upon hundreds of mantras to use. Some of them have very specific purposes, such as for astral projection, awakening within dreams, remembering dreams, having past life recall, being able to concentrate the mind, develop the heart. Really, it, the the effects and the uses are, are endless. There are many mantras, many prayers that we use. And it's also important that when we pronounce these mantras, that we do so intoning them in as uh, accurate as a way as intended. So different mantras, different traditions have been conveyed given from master to disciple through a unbroken lineage of transmission from mouth to ear. And many times those mantras are given in a certain way. They're pronounced a certain way. Maybe they're prolonged or extended. Some, some are short. And the process in which these types of mantras and prayers become codified or utilized within different groups, is something very particular to the spiritual masters who have conveyed that knowledge, but also the students who have inherited them. And obviously, it's important to us in uh, our school, but I believe also Glorian Publishing has a lot of mantras and prayers they have available on their website where they pronounce and perform, such as in certain videos, how to recite very powerful prayers. And it's good to learn how to use them in the way that they're intended because they have a lot of force. These prayers are formula for connecting with divinity. We can receive a lot of strength, a lot of help by performing these exercises, you know, with a lot of faith, with a lot, a lot of remembrance in our heart, serenity of mind, patience, asking for strength, asking for help. More important than the pronunciation really is the intention. Because as you find with Piot and liturgical poetry, the ancient Jews and the Kabbalists themselves were very concerned with, you know, how do you pronounce these prayers? Like, how do you know when to speed up or slow down? How do you know when to extend the vowels? How do you know when to pause? You know, some things which seem, can seem very tactical, but have their utility. And these are very useful, especially because pronunciation can help us to clearly articulate these exercises. So pronunciation, while it's useful, does not trump the spiritual understanding of what these prayers mean. Because if we understand what, say, the conjuration of the four in Latin or the invocation of Solomon's Hebrew, what they're indicating, when we pronounce the mantras and prayers, 
we have a lot more conviction, a lot more clarity, and a lot more understanding about what we're asking for. Because if we don't understand what the prayers mean, it's like, well, you know, you can still get help, but it's good to know what you're asking for. It's good to know your intention, what the intention of the prayer is. These prayers are like keys to a locked door. And when you use them in the way that they're intended, they open up a lot of knowledge for us. That's why the Kabbalists really dedicated time to learning what is known as, uh, you know, the inner meaning of a prayer. Here's what Arthur Green had to say about Peyot, which is the liturgical poetry of the medieval era. A third element of the rabbinic legacy is the liturgical tradition. While liturgical praxis or practice was codified within halakha, and thus in some ways is a subset of it, the text recited in worship, including a large corpus of liturgical poetry, or piyot, constitutes a literary genre of their own. Medieval writers, including the mystics of both Spain and Ashkenaz, were much concerned with establishing the precise proper wording for each prayer. That's because they wanted to understand kavanah. By understanding how these prayers are pronounced, you know, they can really go deep into the inner meaning and the practical utility, the effect that these prayers have within oneself. We emphasize that, you know, in our tradition, we have certain mantras. It's essential to use them in the way that they're conveyed. Fortunately, again, we have Gordon Publishing's videos on certain prayers that they're releasing sequentially that can help us to understand certain mantras, exercises, which have a very powerful depth and impact, especially when we use them with a lot of attention, consciousness, awareness, and prayer. It's essential to use authentic mantras. It's good to use mantras that have been given to us by initiates. This means, you know, use knowledge that's effective. And really, these prophets and initiates from diverse traditions, especially within Judaism, gave mantras and practices that are very high. They have a great power. They can really help us. And because they have certain development, they were able to convey that kind of insight and prayer to be used by us, neophytes, so that we can fix our problems, gain, gain strength, receive wisdom, knowledge, patience, serenity, fortitude. This is why we emphasize, and also many other traditions, such as in Buddhism especially, you know, it's important not to create mantras, like create your own sacred sound or what, what we think is sacred, because a mantra is like a law, a real mantra. And that when these masters conveyed their prayers to humanity or to their neophytes, they were conveying how through certain sacred sounds and their pronunciation and clear articulation, but also intention, that they have a certain efficacy that helps the soul resonate with higher laws. Therefore, you can't just make these things up. These are eternal. They're like gravity, like formula. They're principles. They're eternal. They belong to divinity. They reflect divine states. And if we want to resonate with that higher level of being, we should use what is 
really conveyed through masters who have perfected that in themselves so that they can clearly transmit to humanity exercises that have a practical import. Therefore, creating our own mantras is, is really a matter of desire and fantasy. It's pride. It's not based in the laws of divine reality. These genuine mantras come from the higher worlds. They reflect those principles. And so when we practice any mantra or prayer and we use it according to how it's intended and you know explained, we can get to the real inner meaning of them. When we understand the inner meaning of a prayer, this is what really protects and defends us from harm, such as with the conjuration of the four or the conjuration of the seven. The mantra, Klim, Krishnaya, Govindaya, Gobijana, Valabaya, Swaha, many prayers that can defend us from negativity. When we you know, practice them as they're intended, they can give us a lot of inner insight and that it is this connection in our heart, our sincerity, which helps defend us from harm in a spiritual sense. So this is reflected within the Kabbalah, that the Kabbalists were very dedicated to codifying liturgical prayer, the piyot, the Hebrew writings, because they wanted to not only be accurate in the transmission of that knowledge, but to really go deep into the real meaning. In the same way that a musician like a pianist cannot really go deep into a piece until understanding the technicalities. Likewise, a practitioner cannot really go into the insight and the flow, the depth, the spiritual aspect of prayer if we don't really take some time to master the details. Like, you know, learn to pronounce the prayers to the best of your ability. I mean, some prayers are can be challenging and foreign and difficult. You know, do your best, but it's good if you can really be clear and articulate with that because you can then go deeper. This is why Arthur Green stated the following in A Guide to the Zohar. The texts of the prayer book, mostly fixed by compendia dating from the 10th century, became in the Middle Ages the object of commentaries, many of which sought to find their author's own theologies reflected in these venerated and widely known texts by the ancient rabbis. This is especially true of the Kabbalists, who devoted much attention to the Kavanah, or inner meaning of liturgical prayer. While not formally canonized or seen as the product of divine revelation, as were the books of scripture, the liturgical texts were regarded as sufficiently holy and mysterious to deserve and require commentary. So a lot of these prayers have commentary in the ancient Jewish tradition. Also within the Gnostic tradition, we have lectures and explanations of certain prayers and conjurations that can help us understand what are we praying for and what are we doing so that we can spiritually defend ourselves from, from harm. We also have what is known as Merkabah mysticism, sometimes re referred to as Merkabah mysticism. This is a very interesting point within Kabbalah because the Merkabah is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel as a chariot of many beautiful figures divine symbols. We see here the chariot of Ezekiel with four mystical animals, four holy winged creatures, the ox, the man, the lion, the eagle. And the man is often represented as an angel. The chariot of Ezekiel is often the focus of many mystical writings in the Kabbalah. 
They often refer to this vision as a divine revelation given to Ezekiel to teach him about the glories of divinity. And often the Kabbalists in the 12th and 13th centuries spent a lot of time talking about this type of mystical revelatory vision in which the soul, escaping its mortal bounds, experiences symbolically the glories of heaven in which the soul is united with divinity and sings in a chorus amongst the angels. This is very beautifully symbolized in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He was talking about this type of mystical experience in which you have the ode to joy, which is exactly this Merkava mysticism. Symbolically, you know, the creatures that you see represented here are anagrams or analogs of the four elements. The ox represents earth, the man represents water, or the cherub represents water, the lion represents fire, and the eagle represents air. These are psychological elements. This symbol represents how when the human individual clarifies their own inner four elements and purifies them through spiritual practice, becomes a mystical congregant amongst the divine hierarchies. Through the process of initiation, an individual clarifies really their body, which is the earth, their waters, which is their sexual energy, the lion, which is their emotional fire, and their mind relating to the eagle, the air, their thoughts. By mastering these four elements and making them sacred, the mystic gains the right to join the spiritual community of the higher worlds. And the Merkavah is a chariot. It's literally the chariot that took Ezekiel to heaven, or you know, I believe in the case of uh, Enoch as well. You know, there's a chariot of fire or a vehicle that takes the penitent soul to divine mysteries. There are many levels and, you know, depths to this symbol. Now, Arthur Green in A Guide to the Zohar explained that this Merkava mysticism is precisely a form of mystical, you know, religious ritual practice, which goes back as far as the Greeks. And that it was you know, has had very profound impact. It's one aspect of, you know, gnosis that we study, but it's also not the totality of what the Jewish mystics practice as well. It's one level or dimension of it. Here's what he said, Arthur Green, in A Guide to the Zohar. The fourth strand of earlier tradition is that of Merkava mysticism. Merkava designates a form of visionary mystical praxis, that reaches back into the Hellenistic era, but was still alive as late as 10th century Babylonia. Its roots lie close to the ancient Jewish apocalyptic literature, except that here the voyager taken up into the heavens is usually offered a private encounter with the divine glory, one that does not involve meta-historical predictions. So it's a form of mystical experience, as I said, that transcends history or time, temporality, the physical world. It goes beyond all of that especially within visions within the internal worlds, such as through dream yoga. Now, what's very interesting about the language used by many Kabbalists in relation to the Merkava mystics is that this spiritual ascension is preceded by a descent. In order to reach higher states of being, it's important really to descend within oneself, to face the causes of suffering within our own mind to clarify 
our thoughts, the air, our feelings, the fire, our desires, our impulses, the water, and our material body, the earth. Salman Vior explains this as the process of initiation, and that in order to enter the higher states of being, the higher communities of the spiritual heavens, the hierarchies, we have to face a lot of suffering. We have to initiate a way of practice that is going to help us confront our deepest psychological limitations and problems. This is very painful. It's humiliating because we see that, you know, we think we're great and we're not. We're proud about something in our life, but really it should be a source of shame. We believe we are one way, but we find that we lack the virtues we claim that we possess in abundance. This only can occur when we take the time and the, have the courage to look, not to assume, to examine. When we enter this type of knowledge and practice it, we face ordeals. We face humiliating circumstances and challenges that are going to provoke our worst defects that we had no inkling or understanding of their existence. They're beneath the surface in our subconsciousness, our unconsciousness, even in the depths of our own inner hell, what we call infra-consciousness, infra-human states. To experience the higher worlds, we have to go down. And this is what the Kabbalists teach in their writings, that to ascend to heaven and the Merkava, which is the chariot of heaven, we have to go down within ourselves, face our own pain, our own inadequacy, our own failures, to confront them and be willing to change. There is no resurrection without death. The impure in our mind must die so the spiritual can be born. We have imperfections and faults that we are negligent in dealing with. And the beginning of initiation is facing all that, having the courage to see what really is in our mind and not being afraid or unwilling to face it. Now, someone Vior mentions in his book, Like the Perfect Matrimony, that really initiation in the spiritual path occurs within a marriage. And that the form of spiritual descent that the Kabbalists teach is a sexual trope. More importantly, it means that a married couple, husband and wife, can descend into the sexual act and transform it from a carnal or brutal, passionate state into something sacred, pure, and divine. Initiation occurs when sexual desire is transformed into love when passion is transformed into compassion, anger into sweetness, impatience into serenity. And this is possible when, really, by harnessing the most powerful energy of creation that we carry within, within the sexual glands, we take the power of creativity in life and give it to divinity. We conserve it and use it for a spiritual purpose. We elevate it within ourselves, psychologically, spiritually, energetically. It is this energy, which is the power of life and the power of creation, the power of love, that really grants the initiate the power of vision. And this is what allowed Ezekiel to see these realities for himself. 
in which all the Kabbalists in their writings are talking about. So the, you know, in this vision of the Merkava, some people or some Kabbalists emphasize that one sees the throne of God and that they're allowed to travel to these divine palaces, you know, this Haikalot, these divine realms, which had their angels, and that they're all praising the divine glory in, with the verb, the sacred sound, the voice of the silence within. It is a beautific, beautiful state in which the soul is free of defect, free of ego, free of desire, free of imperfection, and is naturally liberated within its most intrinsically real state. And this is when the really all the angels say, holy, holy is Yotaba Sabaot, Jehovah, Lord of hosts. And Sabaot is a conglomerate of all the divine beings, the Caribbean, the angels, who are once like us, but who through the spiritual path, the secret path, became perfected. And now have become a prophet, a master, a Mahatma, a Buddha, a God. But if we want to resonate with those higher regions, we have to learn to descend, face ourselves, go down to our sexual energy in order to raise it up. There are many myths and symbols and teachings that explain and associate this myth with many religious cosmogenies, many scriptures, which we don't have the time to correlate or elaborate upon. But in synthesis, the Kabbalists teach that to experience divine vision, we have to master what is known as the Merkava. And the Merkava, really in Gnostic terms, are called solar bodies. These are vehicles, a chariot, a means by which the consciousness internally is vested with spiritual garments, the wedding garment of the soul. A type of spiritual matter energy which can serve as a vehicle for Christ, the Christic energy. This is the meaning of to be born again. Because by taking the sexual energy and not giving birth to a child, but to give birth to something spiritual, we create certain types of vehicles like a chariot that can take us to higher states of being. This is very well outlined in a book called The Perfect Matrimony by Samal and Vior. Here's what Arthur Green had to say about the Merkava mystical tradition. Those who go down into the Merkava sought visions that took them before the throne of God, allowing them to travel through the divine palaces, haikalot, realms replete with angels, and at the height of ecstasy to participate in or even lead the angelic chorus. The term Merkava, chariot, links this tradition to the opening vision of Ezekiel, which was seen as the great paradigm for all such visionary experiences and accounts. It is also connected to the Kedusha formula. Holy, holy, holy is Yotchava Sabaot. The whole earth is filled with his glory of Isaiah 6, because it is this refrain that most Merkava voyagers recount hearing the angels sing as they stand with them in the heavenly heights. Now, we explained recently in a course on dream yoga and astral travel that most of us possess what are known as lunar bodies. We, we go into the dream state we enter dreams every night time we sleep, we leave the physical body behind, and we travel with what is known as the Kama Rupa, the body of desire. It's a form of matter and energy relating to inferior astral states. If you wake up in dreams and you see your 
body or astral body, you can see that it has a type of phantasmagoric or lunar appearance, very cold, dark, because we don't, and most people have not created what is known as solar bodies, the Merkava. The Merkava, the solar bodies are vehicles that, because of working in a marriage, by harnessing this creative energies of the Holy Spirit, the sexual force can give birth to vehicles that resonate with higher law, with spiritual forces relating to the solar divinity, Christ. And then there's this vehicle that can allow one to access really the higher regions of nature. So we have to create those vehicles to descend in order to ascend. I recommend you study the perfect matrimony by Salman Vior to understand the, the depths of this practice. But it is by working with this force that we can resonate with the angels. Lastly, there's the Sefer Yetzirah. It's a short scripture. Very beautiful, very dense, very deep, very enigmatic. It talks a lot about magic, particularly in the relationship of the soul with divinity. Now, this term magic should not frighten people in the sense that what people commonly refer to as magic in common parlance is either a parlor trick or sorcery, something anti-Christic or satanic. The term magic comes from the Indo-European root word mag, or the Persian magush, which means priest. A real priest is a magushan, a magician. Someone who can harness the forces of their own mind, heart, and body, invoking divinity, in order to influence nature, whether internally or outside. And that magic is not something superstitious. It's how we influence others. By this definition, we can clearly see that we influence others all the time, just unconsciously. We're unconsciously exerting maybe our desires, our craving for certain reactions from people, adulation, praise, security, respect, fear, envy, whatever it may be. And usually this is something negative because we tend to follow the whims of our own desires. By this very definition, we can see that this type of attitude is very negative and that it's harmful. Whereas a real priest, a real magician, a real magush learns to receive divinity, the Christic force, the divine, in order to influence his or her actions within life and to benefit our communities, our friendships, our marriage, strangers, everyone. The Sefer Yetzirah is very interesting as a scripture because it talks a lot about a type of magic which has been, uh, you know, very greatly misunderstood and abused. The reality is that real magic is a divine priesthood. It is the ability to awaken our full conscious potential by eliminating defects and freeing soul, extracting consciousness from our own errors so that we can integrate ourselves and become like a Moses who was a real magician. He performed the magic of the divine. And he encountered the, really the sorcerers and witches of Goethia in Egypt. So there are two forms of priesthood. There's positive and negative. 
The positive follows divine law. The negative follows desire. And so the Sefer Yetzirah explains a lot of things related to uh, really the nature of our psychology and how to resonate with higher principles. And therefore, this Jewish aspect of the ancient Kabbalistic tradition really is very deep. It talks about how to practically align oneself ethically, morally, psychologically, spiritually with divinity. Here's what Arthur Green had to say about this topic. The fifth and final element of this ancient legacy is the hardest to define, partly because it hangs on the thread of a slim body of text, but also because it contains elements that seem contradictory to one another. I refer to the speculative magical tradition that reached medieval Jewry through the little book called Sefer Yetzirah and various other small texts, mostly magical in content, that are associated with it. Sefer Yetzirah has been shown to be a very ancient work, close in spirit to the aspects of Greek esotericism that flourished in the late Hellenistic era. Now, more importantly, the Sefer Yetzirah talks about the famous golem. And a golem is a anthropomorphic being made from inanimate clay. In this scripture, there are directions to how to create a golem which on a superficial level, many people have tried to imitate. And obviously because of their foolish interpretations and desires, they fail. They don't understand that we are a golem. We are a creature of mud. We are really in a spiritual sense, inanimate. We're made from amorphous material in the same way that Adam in the book of Genesis was made from the earth, formed from the dust of the ground. That dust, that prime material, that soulless matter is precisely a reference to our own psychology. Spiritually speaking, our mind, our hearts, our bodies are empty. We may feel a longing and a yearning to know divinity. And if we're sincere and humble and seeking wisdom in ourselves, we realize that we are like a golem in the sense that you know, we're psychologically composed of many egotistical, terrestrial, materialist elements. Ways of thinking, feeling, and being which are not divine. We are of the earth. We are like clay. However, we have the potential, like Adam, to receive the breath of life. Now, what's interesting about this scripture is that the golem was described as this inanimate being that could be given life if you write the Hebrew magical word emet aleph mem tav which means truth what is truth it is the spirit it is the being it is divinity and that golem that inanimate being like us spiritually blind and weak, ineffectual, suffering, can be given life and, anim and animation through the truth, through the divine experience, by receiving really, according to the Hebrew Kabbalah, the breath of life. The Hebrew letter associated with breath is Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it relates to our inner divinity, our inner being. However, 
when that divine principle is not present within us, within our mind, our heart, and our body, we are a golem. And if that Aleph, that divine principle, leaves the soul, what you have is Mavet. Because when you take Aleph away from Mem and Tav, you have Mavet, which can mean death. This is spiritual. It is a state of being. It is a state of mind. So what do we want in these studies? We want to become a living soul, like in the Bible. Adam became a living soul because Jehovah Elohim, the divine, breathed the breath of life, Neshama Chaya, and Adam became a living soul, a Nefesh Chaya, became a living creature, was a golem, became a real being, had life. We are like the clay that must be molded by the divine potter so as to receive as an amphora the real wisdom of the heights, like a divine amrita, a sustaining elixir, a spiritual wine. The Zephyr Yetzirah also explains Kabbalah in numerology, like the meaning of the num numerical um, philosophy itself which we study in our tradition in relation to the Tarot, the 22 Arcana of, you know, the the eternal Tarot of alchemy and Kabbalah, because numbers are spiritual. Numbers represent principles, intuitive principles or forces, expressions of divinity. They are laws of nature from the very heights to the very depths. And so we study numerology and the Sefer Yetzirah to understand our place in the universe. If we have dreams about certain numbers, we can understand their meaning by studying the Torah. The Sefer Yetzirah also talks about numbers and how really the unity of divinity is reflected within the multiplicity of universal forms. There is an eternal principle that unites all things and that numbers are a perfect reflection and grammar to understanding that relationship. Numbers help us understand our place in the universe, where we are in a spiritual path, what ordeals we're facing, how to overcome them, and also what to expect. In that way, by even studying some of the relationships of the Hebrew letters to numbers, we can understand many truths that can teach us about what to do practically in our daily life. Because every tarot card especially relates to a Hebrew letter, the 22 major arcana especially. These Hebrew letters are glyphs or symbols that represent these higher forces and principles, which is why studying the Sefer Yetzirah can help us not only understand the, the tradition of Kabbalah, but also understand how numbers are really magical. You know, you receive a dream or a vision in which you see the number 12, for example, relating to the apostolate. You're getting insight and help and teaching about maybe your role as a teacher or someone who is sacrificing for humanity. So these numbers are very deep and they associate with the Hebrew letters. They have a lot of correlations that can help under, inform our understanding. So in relation to the golem and the nature of numbers, here's what Arthur Green had to say about the topic. While the practice associated with this school of thought is magical theurgic, even including the attempt to make a golem, as I said, an anthropomorphic being fashioned from inanimate or amorphous material, such as mud or clay, will imbibe with vitality and life. Its chief text contains the most abstract worldview to be found within the legacy of ancient Judaism, 
By contemplating the core meaning of both numbers and letters, it reaches toward a notion of cosmic unity that underlies diversity, of an abstract deity that serves as a cosmic center, in whom, perhaps better in which, all being is rooted. In very simple terms, the numbers and letters of the Hebrew alphabet, again, represent the principles that have governed and established creation. From the cosmic unity of divine abstraction, from the heights of spiritual reality, that unitary source, we find that all the universes are the result of mathematics and numbers because, as Samuel Veyor stated, God is a geometrist, a mathematician, who formed the universe or the universes on the basis of numbers. By understanding the symbolic import of numerology, we understand the language of creation and also the language of dreams, more importantly. Therefore, Kabbalah is essentially mystical. It is magical. It is practical. It is personal. The Sefer Yetzirah also talks about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. The tree of life is levels of nature and divine being. We explain this somewhat briefly in our previous lectures. It is the map of the universe, the map of dimensionality, a map of consciousness. And the tree of knowledge is sacred sexuality. It is the energies of creative divine potential that can activate our soul and help us witness and gain knowledge of divine truth. Because it is the fire of life, the fire to create, the fire that animates, the fire that inspires. Together, by working with these two symbols, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, and all their teachings and exercises related to there too, we can create what is a, spirit, a spiritual master within ourselves. Sefriyatsura embodies these two trees and their practicality symbolically. Also, the Sefriyatsura, because it is so short, but also very dense, has been the subject of many commentaries. A lot of people have wanted to claim this scripture for their own because it is a very dense, powerful, initiatic text. More importantly, in the Gnostic tradition, we can study this scripture in relationship to the book of Genesis. I believe Glorian Publishing released a book called uh, uh, Relating to Moses, The Secret Teachings of Moses in... Uh, about the book of Genesis, particularly the first few books. And it's included the Sefer Yetzirah at the end. I highly recommend you study that book together because you find that the language of the Sefer Yetzirah is very deep and profound and can be understood when we know the two sciences of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. As Arthur Green stated, Sefer Yetzirah was the subject of a wide variety of commentaries in the Middle Ages with rationalists as well as mystics claiming it as their own. In the 12th century, the language and style of thought formed in the work became central to the first generations of Kabbalistic writing, as reflected by commentaries on it and by the penetration of its terminology into other works as well. So the Sefer Yetzirah permeates the Zohar. And if we don't understand the nature of numbers and numerology, how the Hebrew letters codify the tree of life, how they relate, how to practically work with them in our body, mind, and heart. How to gain knowledge from our own creative energy through sacred exercises of meditation, mantra, prayer, pranayama, alchemy. It'll be very difficult to understand the real depth of what this knowledge is teaching because 
This is the code. This is the language in which it was written. To conclude, we have a reference to a course given by Glorian Publishing called The Cobble of Genesis. It goes into a lot of detail about some of the principles we touched on today and can expound for you many mysteries related to Kabbalah in general. I also recommend The Secret Teachings of Moses, a very powerful book, which has the Sefer Yetzirah included in it by Glorian Publishing. At this time, I invite you to ask questions. We have a question. When you were talking about piyot, you mentioned mantras for strength. What mantras would you recommend that are effective to gain strength over lustful impressions? I know of various mantras for strength, but is there something you might especially recommend for overcoming lust? It's a good question. I think in the moment, it could be very difficult to transform the impression, obviously. Maybe you're in public walking somewhere and you see an image of something lustful appear in the, you know, in our surroundings. In general, in the privacy of one's own home, it's good to transmute the sexual energy daily. So if you have a lot of creative force and drive and you feel a lot of lust, it could be good, you know, again, to be consistent with pranayama, especially. Pranayama can help to cultivate the sexual energy and stabilize it to a degree. But obviously, when in public, when you're surrounded by lustful impressions, that gets very difficult because it's like the energies get stirred up. And so very submerged lustful elements can rise to the surface, can disturb the mind, can afflict it. One mantra that is pretty powerful for rejecting negativity, whether it's one's own lust or one or maybe the lust from other people, would be to remember your divine mother. The mantra Ram Iyo. Lust is the opposite of the Divine Mother. In fact, you find the two forms of divine femininity represented in the Sixth Arcanum of the Tarot. In the Sixth Arcanum of the Tarot, you find a fallen neophyte facing to his left towards the prostitute, the whore, a representation of his own lust and mind because he took the energies of the Divine Mother and channeled them within his own desire. To his right is the Divine Mother, the sacred. She is chastity. She is sexual purity. And if you wish to gain strength from her, work with that mantra. Ram Iyo. You can access the pronunciation on our website. When I've been overcome with lust, I've also invoked her using the Egyptian mantra to the Divine Mother as well. O, Ao, Kakof, Na, Konsa. There's a link to that mantra pronunciation and a prayer that you can recite with a lot of faith, with a lot of persistence, with a lot of patience, 
with a lot of humility and love for the divine feminine. In the second lecture we gave in our Eternal Tarot course on alchemy and Kabbalah. That mantra and that prayer also is very effective. You feel that your mind is trying to overwhelm you and coerce you. Pray to your divine mother in your heart. Ask her to help you. It'll She will give you a lot of strength. But we have to be patient because we're not perfect. We make a lot of mistakes. So going back to the mantra relating to, you know, sexual temptations, you can also really work with the mantra Belilin. It's a very powerful mantra. You can see find a video of it on Glorian's Publishing's website. You basically sing it. You feel tempted by lust. You feel like you're being influenced by really uh, a lot of negative influences. Sing that mantra. The video provides a very beautiful explanation, recitation, and you know, beautiful music to it as well. It's very deep. I highly recommend that as well. We have a question. Have you any good examples on the internet of Agadaz? I'm pretty I'm familiar with the Zohar, especially. The Zohar is really a series of, you know, scriptural interpretations given by these ancient rabbis about the nature of biblical scripture. I highly recommend you study the Zohar. You can read it from Stanford University Press, especially, or the Pritzker Zohar really is uh, probably the best example that I can think of. We have a question. What does being made of clay signify? I see a constant theme in human creation stories. Like, for example, Native American traditions where man was made out of clay. As we were saying, you know, we are of the mud of the earth. Psychologically speaking, we are clay. We are mud. We are filth. The ego is filth. We're made out of clay because currently in our state, we are imperfect. In the creation stories, you know, obviously ancient humanities were not as fallen like us, but in a sense, they were made of clay because they were composed also of the primary elements within nature. The four elements relate to, you know, earth, air, fire, water, and that a perfect human being originates first from the earth because in terms of spiritual development, the soul transmigrates. We initiated our development as a soul within the lower kingdoms of nature, as explained within cosmic transmigration of souls, such as through the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, and finally the humanoid kingdom. In a sense, when reaching the humanoid state, we carry with, it, with us our evolutionary inheritance. But unfortunately, due to the complication of creating ego, we really became muddied of soul. Therefore, the man of clay has to become really like the pot or the, you know, the clay put in the potter's oven, purified by fire. And to use the Mayan mythology, like an amphora that can receive the divine wisdom, we have to become really a divine object for divinity to fashion, mold, and create. We're clay because like in the beginning, we're tohu ve bohu, according to the book of Genesis, formless and void. The earth was formless and void. 
meaning our psychology is not integrated or perfected yet. Therefore, we are made of clay. Egotism, egos, defects, mud of the earth. It's only when we enter the spiritual path that we go from a man of clay to a or being of clay like a golem to a living creature. It's the same myth of Pinocchio, a wooden boy made from the wood of the tree of knowledge who becomes a perfect being, a real human being. Hope that answers your question. We have a question. Can you explain the difference between faith, consciousness, and experience? Typically, when people hear the term faith, they think of belief. The idea that, or the conviction of something without evidence. To believe in the common parlance is to think something is true without having full knowledge of it. Now, in our studies, we're a bit different because we make a very distinct differentiation between faith and belief. Belief, we say, is as a conviction without evidence, but faith is conscious experience of the truth. We can believe in, you know, divinity or Christ or religion or some scripture or teaching, but to have faith of it is to have conscious experience of its intent or content. It is awakened perception. It's knowing from one's own experience. And therefore, you know, someone who has real faith doesn't need to believe because we know. It's a very different quality. This is the real definition of the Greek term gnosis or the Hebrew da'at. So the Gnostic tradition is very focused on learning to have that personal cultivation of divine experience, to have consciousness of, you know, what these scriptures are teaching so that, you know, we don't just accept it. You know, we think it's true or we feel it's true, but, you know, the experience is something else, something deeper. It's a very different quality of the consciousness or potential that is often not utilized or developed or accessed. This is why we study practices like meditation where, you know, you leave behind thought, you leave behind emotion or negative feeling, you leave behind the body and you go within deep, profoundly so that we activate different senses. It's a very different quality. Highly recommend if you're, you know, interested in knowing the difference of what does it mean to have faith or conscious experience, study the course on glory and publishing called Meditation Essentials that teaches basically how to have a very profound serenity in order to develop insight into what these scriptures or teachings are conveying. Very beautiful and profound. We have a question. I am often overwhelmed when learning the Hebrew letters with Glorian. Do you have any advice for acclimating myself to the Kabbalah and the overwhelming reality that the teachings present? Yes. Take your time. <laughs> Be patient. A little bit at a time. I mean, you know, if you're studying a Hebrew letter, maybe give it a month, two months, three months. You know, study a little bit, read a little bit, meditate a lot. Digest it. Don't try to chew and eat and consume information without really digesting or understanding it because the result could be, you know, to use a very blunt phrase, spiritual constipation, indigestion, in which we may get a lot of confusion or doubt or skepticism because we feel like 
excuse me, um, doesn't mean it's too much, too too complicated. You will gain the insight, understanding, and simplicity of it when you see how little by little it applies to your daily life. Because these principles are very practical. There's a lot of associations and correlations and connections between scriptures that are very fascinating and very beautiful and very necessary. But more importantly, examine how, say, for example, the Hebrew letter Aleph relates to your daily life. Literally, I mean, we breathe the breath of life all the time. But are we conscious of it? You can learn a lot more from the Hebrew letter Aleph by paying attention to how you breathe all day. You learn more from that than you can from, you know, reading a lot of books about it. You know, it's interesting to know the correlations, but I would say acclimate yourself little by little. Read a little bit, meditate a lot. Digest it. Therefore, you'll get, you know, as you begin to experience these things little by little, it's like you you feel less overwhelmed because you're not trying to take on more than you can chew. So be patient. We have a question. Can you explain the psychophysiological effects of repentance and forgiveness of others? How does our prayers, how do our prayers alter reality? In strict language, repentance is something very technical. Repentance means to take ownership of one's own faults, one's defects. More importantly, in a deep Gnostic sense, it means to understand the root of our sufferings, how we ourselves, our mistakes, have really generated pain, not only just for ourselves, but for others. In a sense, when we really comprehend a defect in ourselves, maybe it's pride or anger, resentment towards a family member or a loved one, we begin to disempower that element. While we may feel justified or hurt from a situation, by understanding how perhaps we have some agency in it, we can begin to create a sense of distance, not emotional apathy, but psychological clarity. The more we see our own negativity and its source, its causes, its origination, its control over our life, we begin to see that we are really mistaken. And there's a form of a, you know, remorse. It's not a, necessarily a pleasant experience, but it is very necessary. Repentance means we understand our own defects, our own ego, our own mind. When we really understand how our own anger creates pain and suffering, and we recognize how we have perpetuated many problems, we become willing to want to change. That has a profound effect on our body and our mind. The tendency in most of us is to want to deflect. We don't want to take responsibility for what we've done. This is the natural tendency of the ego. Our own defects. However, by introverting ourselves and looking within, we gain freedom. Repentance is following a higher law, a moral law, a spiritual law, the law of conscience, knowing right from wrong, and doing what is beneficial for humanity. 
over our own desires. And when we learn to really introvert ourselves and patiently examine with a fine tooth comb our own mistakes, we gain peace because we take responsibility and we no longer hide behind the veil. And obviously repentance has levels, you know, in one sense, we can consciously recognize that, you know, yeah, maybe we did something wrong in this situation and we ask for forgiveness and it creates peace and serenity for the moment. But have we comprehended and eliminated the anger? Better said, has divinity, you know, eliminated that in ourselves when we've comprehended it? Are we comprehending ourselves? The root of it. Now, What's beautiful about Kabbalah is that as a tradition and as a map, the tree of life, it teaches about the nature of our psychology. There are levels and layers to the mind. Our physical existence is merely but a fraction of it. What we see on a physical level is barely the surface of what is bubbling inside and which we learn to confront when we enter initiation and ordeals. Repentance in the beginning is obviously recognizing our own, seeing our own mistakes and wanting to change. But are we practically working to eliminate those defects which are hidden in the cave of our mind? Because what we see physically is not the totality of what there is to see. We have to perform a descent as the Merkava mystics taught. Descend into your own hell, your own mind, so that you can reascend with knowledge. Yeah, psychophysiologically, I mean, you you feel better when you eliminate anger. You no longer feel resentful or hurt or aggressive. You have peace. Your body is calm. You can meditate much more clearly. You have more peace and serenity when ordeals happen. And you also can forgive others because you realize that we were just the same way, ignorant. And the last part of that question is, how do our prayers alter reality? You know, a prayer is, in strict Gnostic terms, is to talk with divinity. It doesn't mean just to reach out into the void. It also means to receive. This is why we work with certain prayers and, you know, in our tradition to learn to communicate with divinity. But Really, the way to receive or open up the telephone line is to put the mind aside, put away discursive thought, agitated emotion, a disturbed body, suspend it all, relax it, put it aside, consciously speaking, and go within. Withdraw your attention within your inner being. And it is in a state of silence and serenity in which we don't expect anything in which we pray, ask for guidance, reality can speak to us through inner vision. We have a question. Can you explain counter-transference? So I'm not a licensed medical psychological professional. But I can tell you what Salman Vieira meant by counter-transference because he uses these terms a little differently. He explains in uh, The Revolution of the Dialectic 
that counter-transference is the force of the ego. We try to look within our own mind to see our own defects. We have a, a reaction of the mind that tries to deflect or hide its error. This is because our own defects, our own egos, our own errors, our own mind does not want to be responsible, wants to hide, to evade, to justify. In that way, you can see that meditation becomes difficult because of that reason. We try to look within ourselves to see the causes of our own suffering, but yet our mind tries to distract us. Thoughts emerge, memories, emotions, associative thoughts, fantasies of revenge, whatever it may be, the mind fights back because really the mind doesn't want to be discovered. The ego doesn't want to take responsibility. So the results are the means of overcoming counter-transference in a Gnostic, Gnostic psychoanalytic sense is to observe the resistance. You're meditating, your mind is clear, and then suddenly certain thoughts emerge or distressing emotions. Perform an act of psychological judo. Observe the reaction. Look at it. See how, you know, that sense of identification is being projected in our mind and tries to, you know, really convince our watchful attention to follow along with it, to give us, give it our energy. The solution is create distance. Look at it. Don't repress. Don't hide. Don't justify it. Just observe. Look at it. And in that way, you can study the structures and mechanisms of the mind that, you know, are creating problems. So, yeah, I mean, that's my understanding of counter-transference. We have a question. Does the study and practice of the Kabbalah help the problems we see on the recent news? Absolutely. As we were saying in the first lecture in this series, Kabbalah is real meditation. Kabbalah means to receive. It means to receive direct experience, direct wisdom or knowledge from our own being. Obviously, when you see what's going on in the Middle East right now, I mean, it's very distressing. It's very painful. It is very overwhelming. In those moments of distress, we have to examine our emotional state. We have to examine our mind. We have to examine our impulses. What do these situations that we see on X or Twitter or social media provoke in us? In one sense, you know, do we really want to watch the news? On the other hand, what in us is reacting? What in our mind is conflicted, afflicted, disturbed? So Kabbalah can teach us how to be serene because the essence of Kabbalah is to calm the mind, calm the heart, calm the body, enter a state of equanimity, withdraw attention from all external distractions, go within, and in serenity and silence of mind, in a prayerful attitude, watching and waiting in a state of lucidity, suddenly the insights can emerge and guide us and show us what we need to know about how we should live and what we should do in our daily life. So just some thoughts on that.
We have a question. When you say that one should observe our mental defects, at one point, does our experience change into serenity? Should one then contemplate serenity? Serenity is a state of being. It's when our attention is not dispersed amongst multiple factors, like thought from thought to emotion to sensation. If you really examine you know, our daily life, we find that oftentimes our consciousness is dispersed. We think one thing, then we jump to another activity, then we feel a sensation, then we're, you know, our mind is jumping around all over the place. So the beginning of, you know, meditation or a state of, you know, equanimity is observing yourself. You know, take the consciousness, our attention, our awareness has to look within, you know, to examine what is our state of mind, our heart, our body, to look into you know, actively seek to observe. In the beginning, it's difficult because our mind is very agitated and conflicted. Now, serenity occurs in levels. There are levels of serenity and levels of stability of mind. I recommend you really study the course on Glorian called Meditation Essentials. That course is a very detailed and synthesized refined and practical course on developing serenity so like literally from beginning to end you know how do you enter a state of calm how do you cultivate serenity how do you overcome obstacles to serenity literally it talks step by step common you know you know difficulties people face when they're trying to observe themselves and what to do so i really recommend if you want to understand serenity study that course and apply it and practice it Okay. If no other comments, questions, we can conclude. So I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.